I want to begin today's message with a bit of an introduction and a thought. We are in part three of our First Peter series, and I entitled today's message, Am I Really Me? We're going to talk a lot about the issue of identity. There's a power in our identity. We live out who we really think we are. Psychologists have known for years that we live up to names that are given to us. Names intentional or unintentional. For example, many of us have been crippled by words that we've heard early in our life, which is, you will never amount to anything. When we hear that, we instinctively and internally begin to process and fulfill out that mission. That's why it's so damaging. If you have not followed that mission, that means you struggled greatly to break that garbage and to try to refocus on what God said. We also fill out and follow after good things. So if someone says to their children, you can do anything, you're loved, you're, we're so proud of you, you're amazing, they begin to fill out that calling. I am an example of that. My parents have always been a champion of mine. And they've always told me that they were proud of me. And so I have chased out the identity that they have given me. What is more important, however, than anything that our parents have ever said, anything that other people have said, and the only thing that truly matters is what our Heavenly Father says. Now, we also have to be realistic about the fact that we validate certain people's opinion of us and not other people's opinion of us. Yeah? If a little three-year-old comes up and goes, wow, you look really stupid. You have to take it with a certain amount of understanding and saying to that little guy, you get down on his level and you say, you're three, you don't know fashion. <laughs> or something like that. If, however, one of your coworkers walks up to you in the job site and says, really, you wore that outfit, really? Okay, suddenly it has more effect, yeah? Where you're crushed, you're like, well, well, now all of a sudden we validated what they said and not what the little guy said. Why? Because we pick and choose who we will allow to shape our identity. In the very same way today, we must determine that human beings will not dictate our worth. We must ferociously protect who shapes our identity. Other people don't know the facts. Other people don't know us. Other people don't know what they're talking about. They cannot tell you what you're worth. Only God can. And I want all of us to take in this message and not to just understand it intellectually. But you must understand it, own it, and feel it emotionally for it to have any impact. We were built for a purpose. Our creator put us down here, empowered us, and said, you will do this because I'm going to do this through you. That is a valuable identity. So here's my challenge for you. My question, do you have a good sense of who you are? 
Do you have a solid sense of identity? And are you the person who you think that God designed you to be at this point? If not, what needs to change? And how exactly is that change going to occur? You're going to hear a lot of information about how wonderful you are today. And many of you will say, but I don't feel like that. The fill in the blank is for you. It's this. Until we become who God created, our clothes won't fit right. Until we become who God created and we are in process, our clothes won't fit right. It's going to feel too big. It's going to feel baggy. It's not going to feel and you're going to go, I don't belong in this. Yes, you do. God's not done with you yet. Would you turn with me to the book of first Peter? First Peter chapter two, verse four. In the Bible's handed to you, that's page 857. So far, well, this is our third week in. The first week, Peter, who was one of the closest men ever to Jesus in his earthly ministry, he said, I want, there's a few things I want you to know about yourself. One is that God has hand-selected you out and poured all of his love on you. You are special to him. You are destined and designed. Week two said, out of all that love... And mercy that has been poured out on you, it must have an effect on how you treat other people. And there was a challenge thrown at you saying, hold on, why are you treating other people like garbage when you have been loved on and cherished? This week, we jump back into the concept of identity. What I'm going to do is just read a few uh, verses here, and then we'll pray for the word and dive in. All right, let's do that. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4, as you come to him... Meaning the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. May that be so in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we sit at your feet to learn your word that you have given us, this revelation of who you are and what you desire is our daily bread today we take in a meal with you and it might be a little larger meal than we're used to eating but we want to take the time slow down and ingest what you have for us lord do not allow the enemy or distractions to steal away the joy that you want to plant today in jesus name we pray amen All right, first thing that we start off is two words. These two words encompass who I'm talking to today. It says, as you, who are we talking to? Every believer in this room. He is writing to a mixed group of believers. So if you believe in Jesus Christ and adhere to him, and put your trust in him, have repented of your sins, and said, I must be saved, and Jesus, you are the only one that can save me, and you have turned the focus of your life towards him, and you are a Christian today, this is absolutely for you. Do not play it off and say that it is only for paid staff. It is not only for ministers with a title and a business card. It is not... Only for those that are called into the ministry, which, by the way, is a bogus designation. Every believer is called into the ministry. This passage is actually 
for you. If you do not receive it, that would be considered foolishness. For it's a letter written and mailed to your mailbox. Open up your mail and listen to what God has to say. As you come to him, and it's not speaking specifically of salvation in this passage, but it's saying the way that it's termed in Greek is it says, as you are continually coming to him and remaining in his presence. It's a fellowship passage. It says, as you get near your heavenly father, as you get near the son of God, Jesus Christ, he begins to change you. As you come to him, who? The living stone. Now, we have two odd words that are put together because we know that stones are just stones. They're not walking around. That would freak me out. Two odd words are placed together, living and stone. Why would he do that? Well, stone obviously has a couple different values to Peter. Number one, it's an immovable object in the sense of it's sturdy, it's solid. Can Jesus be relied upon? Well, yes, that's the purpose of calling him a stone. However, it also has a personal issue to Peter. Why? Because that's his name. Remember, Peter was renamed by God. And God is actually in the habit of giving people new identities. Have you noticed that? He took Abram and made him Abraham. He took Sarai and made her Sarah. He took Jacob and made him Israel. He took Simon and made him Peter. And when he renamed him and gave him a new... Wow, I just went through puberty right in front of you. That was awesome. Yeah, no idea why my voice did that. That was awesome. Speaking of a new identity... I'm going to go start over on this side. It's called the walk of shame. As I was saying, while Peter was not anything solid, Jesus gave him a new identity. He said, I know what your friends think of you. I know what you appear to be. However, in my eyes, I know who you will be. I change your name thus, and I name you The Rock. Everyone else giggled because they knew he was nothing like that. However, Jesus wasn't done with him. So Peter's going to use this rock analogy, this stone analogy, quite a bit because it's personal to him. But why living? Now, clearly, it could be because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if he's alive, then we can be alive. Sure, that's all tied in there because he did the same thing with what? Living water? the living way, the living bread. It seems that every time we talk about Jesus, we tie in the word living, right? Because he's alive forever after. As you come to him, the living stone who was rejected by men, but chosen by God. Was Jesus received when he was here in this world? No, come on. Y'all read the story, right? Y'all know this backwards and forwards. They looked at him and even the religious people looked at him and said, you're our Messiah? No, I don't think so. You don't fit it. We're not dealing with you. And he was discarded. But isn't that always God's MO? Israel. Has the nation of Israel been respected in the world's eyes ever? No. They've never. They're always the little guys out in the middle of nowhere. And as a matter of fact, if anyone thinks of Israel, they always consider them a problem. 
I've even heard in America all this talk about, man, the Middle East would be so peaceful if it wasn't for Israel. And they're constantly slandered over and over and over. Yet God chose them to be the very pinnacle of displaying him to the world. Though they were rejected by men, he said, they upon their shoulders and through that nation, I will bring about the Messiah of the world. That mantle now passes to the church as well. In addition to them, we too, and is the church, uh, what, respected in the world's eyes? No. We all look like a bunch of idiots. We are not respected by men, we are rejected by men, but yet, God has said, through you I will transform the world. So it doesn't matter what people say. It only matters what God says. That we must continuously lock in every moment of our lives. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. Obviously, the son of God is precious. And then he quotes Psalm 118:22. He said, you also, just like him, like living stones, you're being built into a spiritual house. Nope. Oh, now it gets personal to us. We are living stones. What in the world does that mean? Now, the word is not rocks. We are not little rocks. The difference between a rock and a stone in Scripture is that a stone is a dressed rock prepared for building. Does that make sense? And you say, well, how does that relate to us? Jesus took you out of the raw. The Holy Spirit cleaned you up and dressed you and said, you are now fit for the kingdom of God. We are now utilized in his building. Does that make sense? We are living stones. Clearly, we're living, we're walking around. But here's something I need you to understand. And in a sense, I'm preaching to the choir here, but I will also preach to those that can hear my voice on the radio, that can hear my voice on podcast. It is this. It says that we as living stones, is that plural or singular? That's plural. Why is that important? Because... If you had, let's say the modern day equivalent to a dressed stone would be a brick, right? So you have a brick, which is useful for building. If you see a brick on the side of the road by itself, what do you say when you drive by? You say, oh, look, a brick, right? (laughs) It's not rocket science. You don't go, wow, what a valuable brick. It's just a brick. If it's in the road, you don't want it to pop your tire. So you kick it out of the way. However, what happens when you have a whole bunch of bricks? You see building material. And as a matter of fact, a bunch of bricks put in order, it's called a wall. A bunch more bricks all put together and orchestrated by a designer is called a home. There is no such thing as a solo Christian. Do you understand? If you're just sitting out there by yourself because you're too superior to hang out with us, you're wrong. If you think that you can just go around and skip around and do whatever you want because it's all between you and Jesus and you don't need us people, something's wrong with you. Of course you need us because you're just a brick. But when you come with us, When you allow the designer to begin to motivate and move and shift a whole group of us, you become a large home. 
No matter where you are as a believer, you must be tied into other believers. Yes, you do need us. And yes, we do need you. I just don't want us ever thinking that that's all right or that that's healthy. If you are by yourself, there better be a darn good reason why. And you better have been placed there by God. We move on. You also, like living stones, are being built. It doesn't say are building yourselves. It's passive. It's are being built. Get out of God's way and let him build you into something important. Don't try to make a name for yourself. Don't try to force it. Don't try to be a big deal. Get out of the way. He's building you are being built into a spiritual house. When Paul says this very same concept, he calls it a temple. What's the difference between a temple and a house? In this case, nothing, because it's talking about a place where God resides. We together, as the body of Christ, meaning in this church and external to this church, are the body of Christ. He dwells among us. What is so fascinating is that as you walk the halls of this church... You'll see glimpses of Jesus. You'll hear him in conversation. You'll see him in acts of service. You'll look around and watch when someone lights up and hugs another person and comforts another person. You go, there's Jesus. I just saw him. One of the reasons why we come together is that we would be able to see Jesus a bit more tangibly. And we need that. You... Also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be what? A holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All right, let's talk about priests. You know anything about priests? All right, let's go old school, ancient Israel, Old Testament concept. There was a high priest of which we know the modern day equivalent is that Jesus Christ is our high priest. The priest then would work underneath the high priest and they would do certain things for the nation of Israel, offering up sacrifices. They did two primary things. Number one, they had access to God and were to bring people to God. That is our job now as the church. Number one, to access God and to bring people to God. That's what we do. Number two, they bring sacrifices or offerings to God. And we are to do that. However, we don't do it the old school way. We don't bring tangible sacrificial offerings in the form of animals anymore. We have a new style of sacrifice, which is what? According to Romans 12.1. We are living sacrifices, acceptable and pleasing to God because of who Jesus has made us. Your job is to bring your life before him on a continual basis. Fascinating side note. In Latin, the word for priest is pontifex. You know what pontifex means? Bridge builder. So, we have a ministry here for 50 and over, and what's the name of it? Bridge builders. We entitled this church Bridgeway for the very reason that we believe we're called to bridge man to Jesus Christ who can ultimately save them. We cannot. We're merely a means by which to get him closer to Jesus who can do something. 
And Jesus is the ultimate bridge to God. That's where the title came from. But understand this. Every believer here is a priest. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells me so. We have access to our Heavenly Father, and it is our job to draw people near to Him, to intercede on their behalf, to bring offerings of glory, worship, and praise. We are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, there it goes again, Isaiah 28:16. See, he said, I lay a stone in Zion. What is Zion? Well, <clears throat> Zion is where God dwells. Now, something really cool is I'm helping uh, friends of ours move today, and it's Travis and Rebecca Honey. Some of you know them. Well, I got a chance to dedicate their two sons, and their sons' names are Ezra and Zion. So Zion's the little guy, right? And it's kind of funny to have such an enormous name on such a little guy. And I remember holding him, and as I was praying over him, I reflected back on this word. Zion means wherever God dwells, so it was used in Scripture in the Old Testament to represent Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the holy city, the city of God, the place where God dwells. But then it kind of was expanded, and they started talking about Zion, meaning the whole nation of Israel, because God dwells among his people. Now that term is being expanded once again. And it's being expanded to all his children, to all believers worldwide. We are Zion. I lay a stone in Zion, he reflects to an Old Testament passage, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Now, we don't build with cornerstones here, so this needs a little explanation. In the ancient world, they would build with large dressed stones or rocks, and you had to pick the first one. That would be the very core, very specifically. You would go through and pick the very perfect rock that you would start out because that rock would determine the stability, the strength, and the orientation of the whole rest of the building. If you angled the cornerstone this way, the building would go that way. If you organized it this way, the building would go that way. What is the point? Jesus is our cornerstone. He is our strength, our stability, and he determines the direction of the church. He determines the direction of our lives. He determines the direction of our families. Everything emanates from him. So I lay in Zion a stone, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. If Jesus is your Messiah, your Savior, You will never be ashamed in the face of God. Now, side note, just because all these Israel terms are being used for the church does not mean God is done with Israel. Now, there's a lot of different views on this. Some of you have grown up in different views, maybe with a replacement theology that God is done with Israel and now it's all about the church. I'm going to politely disagree with you. I do not believe that at all. I believe that we have been grafted into the family, that God is still working. It's not an and or, it's not an either or situation, it's an and. That we are now being worked on as well. 
We have been grafted into the family of God. And yes, Israel has been put on hold while God is using the mixed church to do what they failed to do. And they are being humiliated and embarrassed. But God's not done with them. God's eyes are on Israel. God loves Israel and God will bring his nation back to him. I believe that very strongly. I believe that's really what Revelation talks about. Picks it up in verse 7. Now, to you who believe, that's all Christians, this stone is precious. Jesus is precious. But to those who do not believe, and he quotes Isaiah 8, 13 and 14, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. What is he talking about? Well, a capstone is, in to do an archway, it's the very center stone on which all the pressure lies, and it's to be the focal point. The very rock that everyone discarded when the religious leaders said Jesus was not the Messiah has become the pinnacle of all things of salvation. And it's a rock that makes people fall. What's the point? It's saying as you're walking along, you trip over it. Why? Because if you're a believer, Jesus Christ is your friend, your savior, your Lord. If you are not a believer, he's your judge and you don't like him very much. It's pretty obvious. I think that one thing we have to get through our minds as Christians is how people that are not into Jesus view us. You have to understand, we look really weird. We do really weird stuff. Please do not ever forget how weird you are. Because if you forget that, you tend to talk to them about it and assume that they understand. They do not understand and they think you're weird. Now, it's completely fine to be weird. As a matter of fact, the very root word of holy is different. So it's cool to be weird. However, just don't assume that they get it. Because your favorite person in the whole wide world is the one that they're afraid of sending them to hell. And I just need you to understand that. I know you think he's fantastic, and he is, but until he becomes their savior, they don't like him very much, and he's irritating, he's trying to tell them what to do, and he's trying to control their lives, and nobody likes that. It says, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is what they were destined for. The idea is their sin is upon them. They have not been cleansed. Therefore, they're destined to go away from God. However, they stumble and trip, not because they're ignorant, but because they're rebellious. In the Bible, unbelief and disobedience are always linked. You know how we always have these questions in our minds and we say, what about the native who's never heard about God? We always have this whole idea that somehow, someway, God's going to be unfair. Is that he's going to hold somebody accountable and throw somebody into hell who's never had any access to him or any opportunity. That issue is never addressed in scripture, in my opinion. Nowhere does it address the issue of someone who's never had access to their God. As a matter of fact, every time unbelief is used, it's called disobedience. Meaning God has revealed himself to man. They just don't want to hear about it. That's a rebellion issue. Is there any human being that has never been in contact with their God? I don't believe so. We move on. It says this. 
But you, you are a chosen people. You are hand-selected by God. Now, we get really caught up in this idea of being chosen by God. Um, Let's use an analogy. Um, Abraham. Abraham was born into a regular family. As a matter of fact, in that day, he was born more in the Mesopotamian region. He was born in a polytheistic family. They believed in many gods. He's just a regular guy, perhaps a man of faith, perhaps a soft-hearted man, but just a regular guy. He did not believe in Yahweh, did not know anything about Yahweh. And God looked down upon all these people walking around and grabbed one of them named Abram and said, I will take you. Now, we all kind of go, well, why'd you pick that guy and not that guy? That's the wrong question. The question is, why did he pick him at all? He picked him out because he wanted to pour out love. He grabs this guy and says, hey, by the way, little man, I'm going to make a massive nation out of you. Now, Abraham might have just went, well, why me? And the question is, because I love my creation and I grabbed you. For example, let's take it another step. We were just down at the lake for the baptism. The baptism was awesome. Well, my littlest one started making a little pile of driftwood. She was walking around and finding driftwood. So she would go out and she would grab a piece of driftwood. Now, why did she select that one? I don't know. She wanted to pick up a piece of driftwood. What's so funny is we all get into the argument and go, well, why'd you reject the other driftwood? (laughs) Well, you don't like driftwood? No, I like driftwood fine. That's why I picked a driftwood piece and I put it over here. Oh, I understand. But you didn't grab all the driftwood, did you? No, I didn't. I grabbed one piece of driftwood. Huh. Interesting. Is there hatred in your heart? You're like, no, it's driftwood. What is wrong with you? I grabbed a piece of driftwood and I wanted to fashion it into something cool. That's it. When we hear the term, you are a chosen people, just know that God looked down and poured out his love on you. Know that. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Now, that's a big mixture of Isaiah 43 and Exodus 19. But it's very Israeli in terms. Chosen nation, stuff like that, royal priesthood, all that. Why are we that? Why is our identity that? What must we do? That's the next phrase. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. What's our job then? To be billboards for God. To be advertisements for God. To display God to the world. And he called us out of darkness. In darkness, we're ignorant, don't know, and we're groping about trying to feel our way. However, God is light. When you get near him, he shines upon you and you see who you really are. In the darkness, you can pretend. But in the light, you know who you really are. And you will find your purpose and identity in Jesus Christ. It says once, verse 10... Once you were not a people, you were not saved, not God's cherished possession, but now you are people of God. Once you had not received mercy for your sin remain, but now you have received mercy. That's Hosea 1 and 2. Let me talk about this idea on why we're valuable. Okay, so I have a confession to you, and perhaps for some of you, you will not enjoy this, and I'm sure we'll lose some people over this, but I have nerd hobbies. 
Now, I appreciate the fact that I try to be cool up here. However, I must be honest with you. There are certain nerdy things about me. Now, one of the major nerdy things about me is my little hobbies, the things that I get into. And my hobbies are I collect sports cards, I collect comic books, I know, and I collect vintage records. Now, why do I do these things? I have no idea, and I'm really obsessed with them. All right, moving on. Now, what dictates the value of memorabilia? What's intriguing is it has nothing to do with the examination of the item. For example, let's say that there is a pen. You look at the pen and you go, hey, how much is this pen worth? And they go, I don't know, it's a pen. But now you associate it with a president who signed a very important document with that pen. How much is the pen worth? It skyrockets. Now, let me give you an example, a real life example. One of the top three most expensive albums in the world is an album by the name of Double Fantasy by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Is anybody familiar with Yoko's vocal quality? But he loved her. That made the difference. All right. So John Lennon, who's extremely well known, did an album. It was the last album that he did, and he did that with his wife, Yoko Ono. Now, if you listen to the album, I don't think you're going to be impressed with the quality. I think, as a matter of fact, you might want to get rid of the album. However, this album is in the top three most expensive albums of all time. Why? Not all albums, just one. One double fantasy album is signed by John Lennon. You go, I'm sure he signed a lot of them. Ah, but this one's different. This album was signed four hours before his death, and he signed it for his murderer. He had just signed his album, handed it to the guy. Four hours later, he was shot and killed by the same guy. That album is one of the top three most expensive albums in the world. Because of who and what it's associated with. If you examine the album, guess what it looks like? Black vinyl. If you listen to it, you will not find anything different than any other album. But because of who it's tied to, it's of highest value. Let's make this practical. You examine another person, you're not going to be impressed. If someone else examines you, they're not going to be impressed. Why? Because it's not the object. It's who you're associated with. If I told you that I had a rock that Jesus Christ skipped across the Sea of Galilee, that's a valuable rock. What I'm telling you is that you're a masterpiece created by the very hand of God and that you are a child of God and that you are priceless due to the fact of who you're attached to. Amen? Now that is worth being happy about. Let's move on in the passage. Dear friends, he says, in the last two verses we'll cover today. Dear friends, that word is beloved. And as a matter of fact, in his two letters, eight times, he reminds them how much God loves them. So never be tired of that. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world, meaning don't act like this is permanent, to abstain from sinful desires. The word abstain from is to hold oneself constantly back from. 
sinful desires which war against your soul. Everybody familiar with the power of temptation and that constant exhaustion of trying to fight against temptation? Yeah, it's a war. But do not give in. As a matter of fact, as billboards for God, look at the next verse, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Let me clarify the translation. When it says live good lives, that's a horrible translation. It does not mean live lives that do the right things. As a matter of fact, it's a very complicated word that doesn't translate. The word means beautiful, winsome, attractive, amazing lives. Live a life that absolutely is stunning and attractive for the whole world to see. How are you supposed to live that? To who? To the world around you, to the pagans. For though they accuse you of wrongdoing, do they ever do that? Yeah, in the early church, that was the biggest problem. The main reason for persecution in the church was Christians getting titles that were incorrect. They had bad press. They were called cannibals. They said they were guilty of disrupting homes. They were guilty of incest and orgies. They were uh, rebellious to Caesar. And so they were persecuted because people were telling rumors about them that were not true. He said, though they say bad things about you, you must minister to them. And you must live lives that are hyper attractive to them. Now, unfortunately, a lot of Christians that I know have this attitude. They don't like me. They don't respect me. Forget them. Who cares? Who cares what they think? God cares what they think. Grow up. You're not here for you. You're here for the rest of the world. And you need to watch how you live. And you need to watch what they think. Not to shape into what they think, but to clarify what they think. It says that they may see your good works. Did you see that phrase? That word means with long, careful observation. Not in an instant. They're not going to figure you out right off the bat. If you walk up and you're super nice to somebody, they think you're either a used car salesman or Mormon. Right? That's right. You have your own agenda. They're automatically going to be suspicious as to why you're friendly. Only under careful observation will they figure out your character. Live lives under their microscope in such an amazing way that when they look long and hard, they know you are Jesus Christ. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. When God comes to see them, are they going to say, Oh, you're their dad. You look just like him. Let me close by saying this. The world has a lot of things to say about you. They have a lot of opinions. Unfortunately, they don't know what they're talking about. But God does. And if anybody was a true collector of persons... And they looked you up in God's catalog 
and found out what God made in you and what he uses you for, they would see the phrase priceless. Don't ever forget that. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for drawing us back to listening to you, to learning from you. Would you replace all the garbage of our past?